Shalom, and welcome to Parasha Highlights and Insights. This is Rabbi Avraham Fisher, and this week's parasha in Israel is Parashat Matot. We're coming towards the end of the book of Bamidbar, and this week we read Matot. It's uh, not a very long parasha in terms of uh, uh, column inches, as we might say, but there really is a great deal uh, to be learned from it. Uh, the first part of the parasha deals with an area of uh, halacha, uh, the subject of nidarim, of vows. Uh, a vow is a commitment that a person makes to do something, like bring a sacrifice, to refrain from doing something, like not eat chocolate. Um, there are different types, there are vows, there are oaths, we won't go into all the differences between them, but uh, this is what the first part of the parasha is about. And the first general statement that uh, the Torah makes is that one is not permitted to desecrate one's vow. Uh, if a person makes a commitment, again, either a positive one or a negative one, then uh, one is not permitted to, uh, to violate it. One must fulfill that obligation. Uh, and that is true whether uh, one is a man or a woman. We're talking about an adult, uh, but uh, once one is an adult, one uh, must keep the vows that one makes. Halacha gets involved in the discussion of uh, what is an adult in this respect, but uh, generally speaking, we're saying that uh, people must uh, must bind themselves and must uh, honor the vows that they've made. In a sense, this section is um, a foreshadowing uh, of what we're going to have later on in the parasha, where uh, some serious commitments are made by the tribes of Ruvain and Gat, but we'll get to that uh, soon enough. Uh, in discussing vows, um, the Torah talks about a special situation of the vow taken by a woman. Uh, of course, an adult woman is uh, required to, to keep her vows, um, however, uh, there is uh, some situations where a woman might be released from her vows. Uh, one uh, might be the case of a minor. Now, not a child, because a child is not bound by, uh, by the oaths or the vows that they've made, whether a boy or a girl. But if someone is a minor, yeah, we won't get into the details about how old we're talking about here, uh, person is a minor, and she's still uh, under the supervision of her father. If that's the case, then uh, her father has the ability uh, to release her from that vow, uh, to declare that the vow is uh, null and void. Uh, Similarly, not identically, but similarly, uh, a married woman uh, can be released from her vow uh, by her husband. There are limits uh, in both cases, but that, that those are the basic parameters. And another one of the parameters that the Torah says is that the uh, father or husband, respectively, uh, can release the woman in question from the vow, but only if uh, uh, they do so uh, on the day that they hear it. Uh, if more time than that elapses, then the man does not have the authority to uh, 
to release the woman from the vow, and she's obligated to keep whatever vows she has committed herself to. Uh, and again, the, the Torah emphasizes the importance of uh, honoring one's word, keeping one's word. The second uh, very large section of this uh, parasha uh, has to do with the war against Midian. This was uh, alluded to previously. Uh, remember that Midian was the nation that bound together uh, with, Moab, with Moab in order to, uh, to attack Israel. Uh, the first way they tried to attack Israel was by hiring Bil'am to curse them. That didn't work. Uh, and then, when that didn't work, they, uh, they sent uh, the women of Midian uh, against Israel in order to entice them to uh, immorality and uh, idolatry. Uh, so Midian is really guilty of driving a serious wedge between God and the people of Israel because as a result of this uh, wide-scale sinning, uh, God brought a plague which killed 24,000 people. Uh, so now uh, it is uh, it is time to avenge this uh, th- these acts against Midian, and so Hashem tells Moshe uh, to actually uh, send the people to war. He, he talked about it in the previous parasha to get ready for it. Uh, in the previous parasha, we took a census of how many people there are available for the standing army, so we know the the size of the available army, and now it's time to to do so. And so the Torah uh, tells us in detail. Uh, how Israel attacked Midian uh, and attacked them very, very thoroughly, uh, killing all of the men, killing the kings of, uh, of Midian, uh, and also killing uh, Bilam, who, uh, as uh, Deshmaya would have it, uh, was in Midian apparently at the time, and they sought him out and killed him as well. Um, and then uh, the, the soldiers brought back the spoils of war, to the victor belong the spoils, so they brought back all of the various items they had taken as uh, the spoils of war. Uh, when Moshe inspects their uh, the spoils, he rebukes them uh, because they have left alive uh, all of the women. Uh, they were the ones who uh, were uh, willing participants in uh, seducing B'nai Israel and uh, bringing about ultimately this terrible plague, and the, that's the reason why they went to, the, to war. Um, and so he says that uh, these women should be put to death, uh, but children can be kept alive, and uh, certainly female children may be kept alive, uh, but the spoils, the other spoils, may be kept. Then Moshe also goes on to talk about and, uh, the purification, because people who come uh, in the battlefield, uh, come in contact with death, uh, have uh, become tame through contact with the death, with with the dead, and that's true both of the people and of the vessels. So uh, the process of purification after the war for people, as we learned a few parshiot ago in Chukat, uh, involves a seven-day period um, on which during which the, on the third day and on the seventh day the person is sprinkled with the water that contains the ashes of the uh, paraduma, the red heifer, uh, at the end of which time the person goes to the mikvah and becomes uh, pure. But until then, uh, these uh, soldiers have to remain separate. Also, vessels can become today because of their contact with the dead. And, some of those, and many of those vessels uh, were among the spoils, so they have to be 
Um, they have to uh, be processed. Um, one uh, aspect of their uh, of their process is uh, purging. It, if they were used as vessels for, for cooking, uh, then they must be purged of whatever unkosher food, and that's what you have to assume, uh, has been absorbed by the vessels themselves. The whole process of purging, depending on the use of the uh, of the vessel in question, uh, whether it was used with direct heat or uh, with liquid or, or the like, but there's a process of purging called hagala that has to take place, and also uh, it's necessary for these vessels if they are uh, tamay uh, to also be purified in much the same way as a person would be. Um, but in addition, uh, we learn from this section that even if the utensil was not used for cooking, and even if it did not come in contact with the dead, the very fact that it was owned by a non-Jew requires that it be immersed in the in a mikvah uh, before being used, so that used so that we have from this yet another uh, purpose of the immersion, um, namely, uh, namely for the purpose of uh, of uh, of being able to be used. This is called Tevilat uh, Kelim. We proceed from there uh, to to learning that uh, that uh, there is a there is a desire to uh, dedicate a portion of the spoils for Hashem. Uh, first, the people uh, are required to take a full inventory of uh, what they brought back in the. Uh, in the uh, in the spoils, um, and a portion of that is to be given as a uh, is to be given as uh, a, de- a devotion, uh, dedication to the mikdash, um, and that is is offered. But we're also told uh, that when they took account of the people who came back from war, uh, there is no one unaccounted for. Uh, everyone who went to war uh, came back. That's clearly uh, as a result of God's uh, protection. In the last section of the parasha, I said the Torah is really divided into three parts. In this last section of the parasha, we learn about uh, the territory to the east of the Jordan, uh, which has now come into the uh, control and the possession of uh, of Am Yisrael. Uh, The Torah points out to us that the territory that they've taken uh, is territory that is particularly good for grazing land. And two of the tribes, Ruvain and Gad, uh, have uh, quite uh, a bit uh, of, uh, of flocks. And this would be really suitable land uh, for them uh, to use for grazing. Um, and therefore, Ruvain and Gad make a request. First, they present the facts. The territory that, thanks to God, has now come under our control is grazing land. And as you know, uh, our master Moshe, uh, we, the the tribes of Ruvain and the tribe of God, uh, have a great deal of livestock. Uh, Moshe allows them to continue. He doesn't uh, do their work for them by by arguing their case uh, for them. (coughs) But they formalize their request that they want... uh, 
to have this territory, the territory to the east of the Jordan, to be their territory, uh, rather than whatever would have been given to them to the west. Uh, and they say, do not take us across the Jordan. Um, Moshe rebukes them for this. Uh, he uh, says, uh, do you mean to suggest that everyone else is going to cross over to the Jordan uh, and uh, be involved in the wars of conquest and the process of division while you stay here? After all, they helped uh, you conquer this territory on the east of the Jordan. Um, and Moshe even goes back to history. Uh, and he says, you know, the previous generation, uh, when, your, when your fathers um, expressed a serious reluctance to go into the land of Israel, uh, the result of that is that that entire generation that had come out of Egypt um, was, uh, it was decreed upon them that they were not to go into the land of Israel, that they were to die in the desert. Uh, and uh, therefore we've been in the desert for a total of 40 years. Do you mean to repeat the mistakes of your fathers? Because if the rest of the tribes find out that you're not crossing over the Jordan, uh, they will lose heart as well, and they will not want to uh, help in the conquest of the land. Uh, their response, Ruvain and God, uh, understands um, that they are uh, to join everyone else in the, uh, in the battles to conquer the land. Uh, and they say that in the first place, before we go to battle... Uh, we will uh, we will construct places for our uh, for our flock uh, for our cattle uh, as well as places for our families to live uh, and then we will go in and fight side by side with the rest of the children of Israel. Uh, Moshe corrects them. Uh, he corrects them by changing the order uh, of what they said to the correct order, namely putting the priorities of family first. So he says, build, build a place for your families to be, as well as uh, a place for your flocks to be. And then uh, you have to commit to to fight side by side with uh, Am Yisrael. If that's the case, then Moshe approves. Uh, they accept the, uh, the conditions, uh, and the conditions are very clear. If they are uh, going to fight together with everybody else, um, then they will inherit this land to the east of the Jordan. If not, then they will not inherit that land. Uh, and instead, you'll get a portion to the west of the Jordan, just uh, like everybody else. And it's, uh, the, the conditions are stated very, very clearly. They are a role model of how you incorporate decisions into a commitment. As I said in the beginning of the parasha, that there are commitments being made here, and here are the uh, exact uh, conditions. Uh, and so the decision is made that this should be done and uh, they accept the terms and uh, it is fulfilled. Uh, Moshe adds to Ruvain and God that these territories will be yours uh, after all of the conquest. Moshe adds also the half or half of the tribe of Menashe uh, to be to the east of, Jor- of the Jordan as well. Uh, and so Ruvain, God and half of the tribe of Menashe or to the uh, to the east of the Jordan, and um, they they make this commitment. Uh, they aren't uh, able to uh, to cash in on this uh, uh, on this commitment until after the years of conquest and the years of division. And therefore, we only learn about uh, how it was 
uh, actually put into effect until we get towards the end of the book of Yahushua, uh, because that's when uh, that takes place. We're also told uh, about cities that uh, God and uh, Ruvain uh, had assigned to them, uh, that would be their cities, the places that they conquered, uh, and also some of the conquests of the tribe of Menashe, uh, which uh, are supposed to be designated for the tribe of Menashe, the half-tribe of Menashe to the east of the Jordan. I'd like to return to the subject of the war against Midian, uh, where Hashem says <coughs> to avenge the Israelite people from the Mid- on the Midianites, and then, meaning only then, afterwards, you will be gathered to your, to your people, meaning it's only after this war that you, Moshe, uh, will, uh, will pass away. Uh, so it seems that the, uh, these two are contingent one upon the other. Uh, it is only after this war, uh, this, uh, this avenging the people uh, from the Midianites, uh, that you, Moshe, will, uh, will die. Noteworthy and, and, and praiseworthy that Moshe did not delay, uh, even though this meant that um, this was his last uh, major act. Uh, but I want to talk about um, the Rashi on this pasuk, where Rashi takes note of the fact that even though Moab was united with Midian uh, in uh, in wanting to fight against Israel, let's remember that Balak. Uh, the one who uh, summoned Bil'am was the king of Moab, not the king of Midian. Uh, he banded together, and Midian banded together with him in order to uh, fight against Israel, to prepare to fight against Israel, and certainly uh, to, to curse Israel. Um, but the Torah says very clearly here to avenge the uh, Israel of the Midianites, Me'eta Midianim, and Rashi points out, uh, but not the Moabites. Uh, they are not to be avenged. They are not to, they are not to uh, fight with them. Um, we find out um, later on in the Torah, in the beginning of the book of Devarim, uh, when Moshe recounts these incidents, uh, that, uh, where Moshe says that Hashem told him uh, not to provoke Moab. Uh, so uh, the question is, why only Midian? and not Moab. And Rashi gives uh, two answers. The first answer is when Moab uh, wanted to fight against Israel, when they hired uh, Bil'am in order to fight against Israel, they felt a definite threat. They were threatened by Israel because Israel was uh, successfully conquering the territory nearby them, uh, Sihon and, uh, and Og, and uh, they felt a real threat. Now, they didn't have to go to war. There were other solutions. Um, they could, uh, if asked, they could just simply allow Israel to go through their territory on their way to Israel, which is what Israel asked of, uh, of Sihon and Og, and that wasn't allowed, um, or, or Edom. Uh, but from Moab's perspective, Israel was a threat. And therefore, it was uh, understandable that Moab would... Uh, would want to prepare for war against Israel uh, because they're a threat. Midian, on the other hand, uh, Midian was not threatened. They, it, the, uh, the territory where Israel was conquering was not territory that bordered on the territory of Midian. So there was really no threat to Midian, and yet 
they entered into this uh, this pact with Moab in order to go against Israel. Indeed, Midian put aside their old uh, fights with Moab in order to uh, go against Israel. So Midian was less justified, was not justified in uh, going against Israel, and therefore that's one reason why she says uh, why uh, Israel is uh, is not is only to fight against Midian and not against Moab. Second reason Rashi gives uh, for uh, for not going against, for not fighting against Moab or Ammon, for that matter, um, is because of two very special people who will descend from these two nations. Rashi calls them the two Paredot uh, Tovot, the two uh, good or beautiful doves uh, that will come from them. Uh, one from Moab and one from Ammon. From uh, Moab will come Ruth, uh, will come Ruth, who uh, will be admitted into the Jewish people uh, because the prohibition against accepting uh, Moab to marry into the people applies only to the men and not to the women. And Ruth comes uh, genuinely out of uh, out of kindness and commitment. She marries, uh, and her descendant is none other than. David Hamelch and King David, which means also that she's uh, the ancestress of Mashiach. Uh, the other person who comes from Ammon is Naamah of Ammon, uh, who was the wife of uh, Shlomo Hamelch, uh, and and through her we have the continuation of the Davidic line. So it's really from Mo, from Ruth uh, that we get to David and. From from David to Shlomo, and from Shlomo and his Ammonite wife, uh, Naamah, the continuation of the Davidic line, which uh, ultimately brings us to Mashiach, Bimher uh, Yamenu. I thank you very much for joining me on this examination of Parashat Matot. Uh, this has been Rabbi Abraham Fisher for Parasha Highlights and Insights, saying Shalom. <laughs>